If you've spent much time in the kitchen, you know there's nothing like a well-made knife. You also know a well-made knife is no simple thing. Some knives are too heavy, or too light, or just not balanced. Some have a slight curve to the blade. It's almost imperceptible to the eye, but you know it as soon as you start cutting something. Some knives won't stay sharp no matter how often you sharpen them. And then, some knives just don't feel right in your hand. A good knife, it must be said, is personal. So is the process of making one. Today, Chelsea Miller of Chelsea Miller Knives and Michael Ziba of Ziba New York drop by the studio to tell us about their knife making processes. Turns out, they do a lot of things in the opposite way, but they agree on one main point. If you don't love doing it, you'll never make a good knife. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. How does a knife maker work edition? So today we're going to talk about knife making. I have two guests in the studio with me. One is Chelsea Miller of Chelsea Miller Knives, based out of Williamsburg, but you came down from Vermont, is that right? That's correct. I grew up in Vermont and moved to New York City when I was 19. And you rely on Vermont in large part for materials you use, is that right? I do. All the wood for my handles comes from my family farm. It's awesome. And Michael Ziba of Ziba New York, you also are in Brooklyn, but not from Brooklyn. Um, yes, I have a shop in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, um, but I was born and I grew up in Poland, and I came here when I was 19 by myself. Also 19? Yes. So how did you guys get started making knives? Uh, well, I grew up in Vermont, a daughter to a blacksmith and carpenter, so I was blacksmithing from a very young age, not by choice. It was more of a child slavery type situation <laughs> for my father. <laughs> so I grew up making hooks and hinges and railings and gates and things like that from a, a really young age. But I'd always been most interested in storytelling and moved to New York as a storyteller and an actress. And over some time, there was really this sort of lacking feeling, which was working with my hands. And um, my father was very sick at some point, And I went home and spent a good deal of time sort of rehabilitating him to his work and in that process really fell in love with it on my own and started exploring that on my own and knives just kind of happened to come out of that. Yeah. And what about you, Michael? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, why? I mean, my father was a butcher, mm -hmm. um, also a hunter. Um, at some point, I, I would get fascinated about knives from my early uh, childhood. Um, but then my father didn't want me to own any knife because <laughs> he was afraid I'm going to stab somebody or something's going to happen. Um, so I, I remember that. You brought knives with you. Should yes, worry? Uh, yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I did. Uh, I brought some stuff. Um, so he was worried about that. I started making because of that. And uh, at some point, you know, he was a biker. Uh, he didn't want me to ride the bike. He didn't want me to do anything with the bikes. And today... I have big bikes, I have four Harleys and stuff like this, so everything flips, you know? Yeah. And he's kind of jealous right now, so. It's That's funny that, Chelsea, for you, you sort of, like, rehabilitate your dad back to this thing that you could share with him, and you were just like, oh, he yeah. doesn't want me to do this, so I'm, I'm going to do it times 10. It's actually yeah. very similar for myself as well, because my dad really didn't want me doing anything dangerous, didn't want me riding bikes. He also has bikes. And I have to remind him all the time, I am a product of you. I am <laughs> you. I am continuing something that, you know, eventually you'll have to put, put down. <laughs> Yeah, it's like maybe, you know, um, they didn't discontinue something. They didn't go to the point of finest. And maybe we tried to do something about that. 
what's your what's the volume of production for for you? Um, it's the band. Um, for next year, I will try to be at the, around for the with the folders around two and a half to three thousand knives. Um, at this point, uh, with the kitchen customs, um, we try to be about hundred to two hundred pieces done fully. You know. Yeah. What about you, Chelsea? Um, it, it depends. It depends on what's going on. But I, for the past couple of years, I've done about 300 kitchen knives per year mm-hmm. and then a, a whole lot of smaller cheese knives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a whole line of cheese knives that are super fun. Um, so when you when you guys each decided to get started, one thing that I've been really curious about is just that the kind of amount and the uh, the amount of equipment that you need and just kind of how intense this equipment is. Uh, that seems like it's a big, it would be a big barrier to entry. But so when you wanted to get started, when you decided like, I'm going to do this, you know, for real professionally, where do you start? Like, how do you get the equipment together? Um, How do you start getting materials and and figure out where to start with producing like the first few knives that you make? Well, for me, it was pretty easy, actually, because I grew up in a lot of space in my father's shop, which is enormous and full of tools that probably I'll never use in a lifetime. (laughs) So in comparison to his operation, mine is incredibly small. I grew up using a a coal forge and, you know, you name it, he's got it. So in creating my own setup, I basically have been working in 100 square feet for five years. So it's really not that not that crazy all the equipment and it's really not very expensive and and if you buy old enough, it should last a really, really long time. So if you can find really well made tools pretty much mm-hmm. set and just don't set it up in your bedroom and um, nowadays it's really simple um, you just turn on the computer and you, you go it there's a YouTube how to make <laughs> knife mm-hmm. and you just basically search for that there's so many guys um, that actually shows um, how to make a knife if you really want to go uh, more uh, then you start spending money then yeah. uh, you have to go and buy a grinder first thing, you know, then uh, drill press. Um, and then we talk about serious money when you want to upgrade it for some blade, some uh, milling machine, you know. And then if you want to go even more, uh, then we talk about very huge investment of uh, CNC machines. But this is this is way... Um, Way more than you actually need to start it, you know. Many many guys actually ask me, uh, what should I do? How I should start it? Um, I always tell them, if you start making knives, make two or five a year, mm-hmm. first year. Just make this knife a beautiful thing. The best you can do it, um, if you have to spend it eight hours, ten, two weeks, three months on one knife, just do it. Well, I definitely want to ask kind of how long does it take, but the first thing actually I think is just can you just describe the process? So what the, from start to end, what is the process? This one uh, is actually 10 inches chef knife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a stainless steel, AEBL, German steel. It's flat grinding, 10 inches long blade. What's the process? Uh, you have to first, you have to cut the blank, the shape shape that you want it, then you grind it. The grinding process of 10 inches on knife is not that easy. Because mm-hmm. um, easy, can bend it to one side. So you have to understand how steel works. Stainless or carbon steel is totally different steel. This steel is rated for 61 hardness. It's totally FDA approval for cooking. Uh, also handles, this is maple, 
about the stabilized maple. Stabilizing process is pretty much pumping a resin under the pressure. You're taking out all the air from inside the wood. Oh, the, interesting. And the wood become a plastic, basically. So none of the bacteria can grow inside. Actually, as maybe you know, all the wood of the knife handles are banned from commercial kitchen. So you can't use any wood handle in a restaurant and stuff like this. Why? Because of the bacteria growing inside the handles and you can't wash them out. You started by talking about you have a blank and you cut a shape out of it. And Chelsea, I wanted to hear what this is like for you because, um, and I, I guess we haven't said yet what you typically yeah. use as your starting point in terms of materials, but you're kind of starting from a different place. I want to hear your take on this. Yeah, so, and it all goes back to the way I got into knife making in general. You know, I started out um, blacksmithing coming from really where my father left off. So his his theory is that, you know, he started very traditional and ended up more cosmic. And I certainly started more cosmic and have become slightly more traditional. But for me, it's really about aesthetic. And my aesthetic is always about giving something that is old and broken a new life. So my materials are actually found materials. Mm -hmm. And a lot of you know, non-precious tool steel. So one of my one of my materials of choice are um, recycled horseshoe rasps, which were once used for filing horses' hooves. So I actually source all of those from farriers in Vermont and around the U.S. and California. Are you worried about running out of uh, rasps? Oh yeah, all the time, <laughs> all the time. That's why I'm always going to warmer climates where there are still farriers working year-round. And so my process is basically cutting with a torch the shape desired from that file and then either forging in my forge or surface grinding the same with a, ben- a bench grinder down on both sides and then heat treating and tempering. And, and my handles are um, not resin impregnated. They're just natural wood that I finish with mineral oil and beeswax over time. So it's much more of a collector's knife. So when you use reclaimed materials, are there certain qualities that you know are going to make for a good knife or a good handle or certain things to avoid? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it all comes down to the hardness and where, where these, I mean, I'm using found materials, so it's not, it's not like premium steel from, you know, parts of the world where there's not a lot of recycled materials in your metal. Yeah. And tool, tool steel in general, it's, it's a little bit difficult to know exactly what the hardness is or the, co- or the composition is. So you kind of have to be a little more flexible in figuring out how to make that work as a knife, whether it's too soft, you want it to be just hard enough. But also with the wood, all the wood that I collect is from Vermont and oftentimes there are beautiful, beautiful pieces that are just too rotten to use without <laughs> without stabilization. So it's all about, you know, drying the wood to a critical point, you know, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay. You guys have both talked about the forge at different points in time. What, is, what does that actually do? What do you do in a forge? And when does that come into play? Well, you're heating up the metal so that you're able to redistribute the metal lengthwise or whichever way you want. But Basically, what you're doing is you're, well, what I, what I use mine for is I heat up the metal until it's red hot, and then on an anvil, you draw it out. So you hit it with a hammer at the base and slowly move forward. And it doesn't stay hot very long, so you have to continually put it in and out of the forge and hammer it out. So you're lengthening your steel, and also you're making it more thin. So instead of grinding from the very beginning and, you know, spending all that time grinding, removing okay. uh, surface, right. you're you're pushing pushing it forward so it's becoming thinner in that way. You're doing that even before mm-hmm. you cut the shape out. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You pretty much, you're doing your shape. Like, mm-hmm. uh, many people don't really, um, they kind of fake forging um, by 
forging, it's, it's supposed to be forged from small piece. Like you said, it's supposed to be dragged on the anvil. Uh, I saw some people online, especially, that, you know, I, I can tell that it's fake. Uh, some people will not. But if somebody is cutting a shape, perfect shape of the knife, and just um, tugging a little bit of uh, hammer on it, uh, that's not forging. It, yeah, it, be it really is about drawing out the process. Yeah. And then, you know, when, you, when you're using an anvil, the anvil, every corner of it uh, has a purpose. So the anvil has a long horn, which you can use, you know, to make, to make a shape, you know, for your, your heel or the hard edges, the square edges you use to shape, to shape the heel. And so you're really using all areas of your anvil while the metal is hot. And you learned that from a pretty young age just because uh -huh. of your dad? <laughs> Making the peachum hook, as we call it. What is that? <laughs> it's basically a hook that needs no nail or no, no screw. It, it is a nail in itself, and then right. from the point of the nail, twirls around into a, a little hook. <laughs> so I made a lot of those at probably between the ages of 5 and 15. 5? Wait, <laughs> it seems like it would require a lot of strength. I mean, not to mention the fire, but to pound it into shape. Is that... Uh, it does. I mean, the stronger you are, the less, less time it'll take you, and that's why some people have power hammers. I don't have a power hammer in, in New York, but in Vermont I do, which is an incredible help. We, it's a giant hammer that's on a pulley with a foot pedal, and so basically when you heat up the metal, you can feed it through your power hammer and get a lot more power for your hammer. <laughs> How hot is it getting? Uh, my forge is about 2,300 degrees. So when you cut out the shape, I was curious um, how you guys figure out what shape to use. I know, Michael, you said classic was best. And obviously for, you know, different types of kitchen knives, you there's kind of a different sort of standard shape. But I'm curious how you guys figured out what the right shape was for the things that you're making. Mm, I believe, you know, as far as the design, it's related to your machine. So whatever it's in your shop and you can actually do it on your, on your stuff. Yeah. That's what's what's about the knife. Classic shape, that doesn't mean uh, it will be an arch or will be a straight angle. I mean, I'm doing this uh, by files. Uh, first shape is done on the machine, on the grinder, and then all curves and everything, that's file. So everything by, by hand. Yeah. Most all my designs come from growing up in, in my family home. My, my mother was a, a chef and um, had lots of different styles, mainly like some Japanese knives and some German knives. So that's where all my designs come from, whether it's a rolling forward or a strict chopper. And a lot of them are, you know, old Solingen knives with wooden handles that, you know, kind of deteriorate to your own hand over time. So once you've cut that shape out, is it grinding the very next step or are there intermediate steps before you actually start grinding and refining it? So my, my father and I found this 100-year-old surface grinder up in Vermont in this old guy's barn. And um, we put a new motor on it, and so we've, we've found a way to, with magnets, attach these pieces to something that actually he can help me with, my dad. So he can, <laughs> you know, run the two levers at a time and yeah. run the machine back and forth and up and down. And then he'll send them to me, and I will grind them all, the rest of it, by hand with a bench grinder and then, a, you know, a really fancy uh, belt sander. So you go through one grit at a time on down, you know, so it gets finer and finer and finer. And like he said before, you know, even on both sides, and you can do most of your sharpening there too. I actually, when I was preparing for this, I visited uh, a knife shop that's some pretty close to my apartment, and I saw that they had, for their grinders, they had like the big kind of like ropes of sandpaper, I guess, mm -hmm. what you call it, of different colors hanging mm -hmm. up on the wall. Yeah, like, you know, typically in my shop, I'm using 36 grit all the way up to, you know, 600,000, 1,200, 
So they're, they're like a they're like a gravel road to a piece of glass. And is it hard to kind of get used to the nuance of knowing, for example, how do you know when to switch to the next finer grit? For me, it's 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 basically muscle memory. You know, it's at a certain point you can really do it without looking. It has a certain sound almost. So it's very much personalized. It's very much you know you you just know. Yeah. What about you, Michael? What's your process like um, for grinding? Totally opposite. <laughs> <laughs> totally opposite because um, what I do is actually I grind with 80. I use M3 Cubitron. Those are uh, custom-made belts uh, by 3M for me. Um, I do 80, and from 80 I go straight to 400. Uh, and for from 400, I go back to 150, but that's the hand sending. So there's a big jump, AD mm -hmm. 400, and then there's a WD 40 oil, and you go by hand to make set and finish with 150, then there's a 220, 320, um, then I go uh, 600, 800, then depend uh, what kind of uh, finish I want it. Some of the knives, they also don't get the final one. Um, like more with the with the folding knives, you know, which which you know I, I make some little guys, you know, like that, you know, and then. So we should just point out for people that are listening that uh, Michael doesn't just make kitchen knives, so this is a, a folding. Yeah, thing. yeah. How do you decide what the right steel is to use for a particular type of knife? Um, it's depend of the market, um, and also it's depend of uh, people that want to use. You know, like um, if you go to my kitchen in my house. I use only 50 to 100 carbon steel uh, with 61. The reason why um, it's easy to shop, um, don't require you to have uh, equipment to reshop everything. So you have your shape, you grind it to get to the to kind of refine the shape to where you want. At that point, is the the steel of the knife pretty much done, and now it's just time to do the handle, or are there other steps that are left? Um, you have to pretty much uh, neutralize the steel. You have to do heat treatment or the steel is hot mm -hmm. um, and then we can actually make tin blade. If you will um, make tin blade out of uh, soft steel, uh, when you start quenching, it will warp. It will just twist it like banana. Sorry, when you, can you just say what quenching is? Uh, quench is like dipping um, hard metal in the oil. It's basically bringing, um, you see the, the, the way how uh, metal is built, the atoms, and everything mm -hmm. goes. The point is to bring all of them so close and tight. Then they become hard. The quenching basically allows it to cool much more quickly. It's getting a shock. So know? it's giving it a oh, shock. So okay. basically you're bringing all those things, to, all those Super molecules hot, together, you know? and then you want to keep them as close as possible by quenching it in oil. You basically quench it in oil for a second. And then, you know, sometimes if it's a very soft steel, it can curl or it can become very brittle and break. So the important thing, once you've quenched it, which is what I do with my knives, is then I heat it at a much lesser temperature for a, a few hours at a time and let it cool completely and then heat it at a low temperature for a long time and let it cool completely just to allow it to sort of settle into its its best state because also as you're working with the metal before you do any treatment you're really changing the compounds by adding a lot of pressure and so it's heating up or it's cooling down when you're not working on it so this is really a way to make it most stable okay and so when you talk about heating it up before you quench it is that getting as hot as it so not as hot as it was in the forge, I would guess. Uh, I have a little thermometer. It's not as hot as in the forge, but so. 
Okay, so once you do, once you've done this, you've gone through the quenching process. Now, is it make a handle? Nope. Then it's on to sharpening. <laughs> For me, so I finish absolutely everything before I do before I put a handle on it. Okay. What do you use to sharpen? Uh, I use stones. I use belts. So the same kind of sharpening process that you would use if you were just resharpening knives that you mm-hmm. own at home. Mm-hmm. Um, is it harder to do the first time? Um, no, it's basically you have to create an edge with the with the belt sanding, and then it's yeah, it's, I guess it's probably a much longer process of sharpening the the first few times. Yeah, because you're not just kind of returning it to sharpness; you're mm-hmm. establishing that to begin with. So once once I finish sharpening, then I tape up the blade, and I'll start working on handles. So okay, so everything is pretty much done. Is tape enough? You can make this knife really sharp, and then you can just put tape over it. And that's fine. <laughs> it's fine for me. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm again totally opposite. I'm sorry again, but um, you know if you if you're gonna see this one, this is almost done, mm-hmm. so it's not sharp at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I brought here this one. Yeah. So nobody get hurt. For, our, for my own yeah, safety. No this is almost done. Uh, needs a couple things. What I actually do is uh, I have that pre-profile. Um, then I start with the handle. Um, it's a step-by-step process. I'm using uh, glass bedding, uh, resin or marine uh, graded epoxy. Um, the reason why, you know, you tell them, do not throw to your dishwasher, and they still will do it Yeah. For at some point, you know? So you want to make sure that handle will not fall off. For me, it's also very important how everything is joined together. Like, you know, for example, uh, on this one, you can see the grain, how it goes and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so what he's explaining, which is a process I use as well, when you, when you choose your material for your handle, you want to have enough of that material to cut it out, cut it in two, and put it back together with the knife in the middle. So as if, it's as if the wood has not been disturbed, except for that spine in between. Right, like if you choose beautiful wood, you want to maintain kind of the continuity and the beauty yeah. of the grain. Yeah, it's nice to be able to use a piece from the same block. You sometimes also see that uh, it's a beautiful, maybe a... Uh, wood texture, but then you're taking a blank, it's like, oh my God, it's not going to work. Or it's not pretty. Yeah, yeah, it's not pretty anymore. <laughs> it used to be. All of the work that we actually do, it's not written in the books. In the beginning, I was terrible with gluing. I was like, I was wasting so much, like sticks and everything to mix. Today, I'm using two sticks a year Yeah. for gluing. Yeah. That's it. I do the handle. I bath everything, I polish it, I make sure everything is the way I want. Um, the reason why I don't shop them, I'm afraid that once I'm on the machine, I'm, I'm doing, you know, polishing and everything, this will flip in my hands and will cut some of my fingers, you know. So <laughs> I'm afraid always that this is what's going to happen to me. And uh, happened a couple of times. Um, you know, you have to spend... Learn the hard way. S- yeah. When you start thinking one step ahead, that's when the material is going to say, like, mm, nope, I don't want to do that. You know, and that's why when yeah. you can be more open to it and just sort of mm, let it happen, most of my mistakes end up yeah. being, you know, the most interesting pieces yeah. that I've made. Also, if, when you try to do a knife, you're not doing this for money. And many people don't understand a knife making. Some people try to make knives just to make money. They try to copy somebody. It's like, why I love this trade, it's because knife making is my passion. Mm-hmm. I started this not for money. Uh, I started with a couple pieces. My first project was uh, with Harley Davidson. 
uh, designing uh, 12 pieces. Uh, then starts, you know, little by little. Uh, finally, you know, we have a tactical with full titanium. Titanium is very difficult to work with. But this is all different, you know, yeah. even, even when I do plating, gold plating and stuff like this. But most of people don't forget that we're doing this because we feel that we want to do it. It's, it's, it's an art. Every piece that it's custom, it's because you want to do this. Not because somebody tell you to do it. It's your design. And there's no competition between us. I, I can't imagine you'd last very long if you didn't love it. You have to love yeah. it. Yeah, you have to love you it. You absolutely yeah. have to love it. So you guys are saying these like really nice things. And I just want to ask, because you're talking about mistakes earlier, like what's the worst thing that's gone wrong as you've made, been making a knife? Well, for me, I mean, safety always comes first. And I yeah. haven't gotten hurt in a long time. but In a long time? Mm, yeah, but there have been some pretty scary situations you know where you, you just you every day you have to be in the right mindset it's 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 so important if I find myself stressed out and going to work or thinking about money then you know I'll get hurt yeah. I put I put a knife through my foot <laughs> a while ago how'd that happen <laughs> uh s sanding on the belt sander and just distracted and you know the blade caught the edge and they're moving at like 80 miles an hour and whoosh, right through my foot. It's a wake-up call to really just slow down and appreciate and respect the process. Yeah. For sure. What about for you? i always afraid I'm going to burn the blade. Once you're so close, mm -hmm. uh, especially with the kitchen, Yeah. if you have preheated, it's already done deal, and then you burn the blade. A uh, little bit of discoloration, brown, uh, blue, red, on, on a blade, that's it. Mm -hmm. you, you can throw it to the garbage. That's it, yeah. When we had the, uh, we had brewers in here before and they were talking about just that moment when you realize you just have to dump out the whole batch. Mm. Yeah, that's... You know, where like you taste one bottle and you think like, oh, maybe it was just that one. I'll try the mm. next one. The, see, I, I, try I, the other ones are yeah, fine. I, and then, no, you, you can't save it. There's certain steps where you just can't go back and that's kind of the price of making something, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got some blanks that I burned them and they they still in my bucket. They still over there. I have, you know, I have a dumpster uh, for steel, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going there. You know, <laughs> it's, it's staying here. And this is, you know, now it's not happening. Um, for, I would say like 100 pieces made, uh, two, three, uh, they out. It's yeah. normal. Yeah. You know, for, for kitchen stuff, none of them can go out right now. You know, it's like, they got to be complete. So what's the what's the next thing that you guys each want to try? Uh, so I have some things coming up that I'm working on uh, from more of a design perspective, which is interesting. So I, like I have a lot of friends in the food world in New York, and um, I'm just I'm really focused mainly on um, producing some in-house lines of uh, steak knives and cutlery but I'm really adamant about it being made in the U.S., so it's been a really interesting process of finding, mm -hmm. you know, places that used to produce things like silverware and knives in the U.S. That, that don't anymore because of, you know, just a few trade deals where everything has gone overseas. So really trying to focus uh, on bringing some industry back into the U.S. and focusing on some of my, my more rustic designs um, that are easier to care for and that can be manufactured by Americans. Like, give me. Mm. 
I don't know if anything left to try. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, as far as, you know, um, I'm going backwards, actually. Like, uh, with my finishing, uh, what actually sells right now, um, many of guys from, you know, my community, knife making, folders, tactical, they go on very fancy products, mm -hmm. like Thai Mascus, um zirconium really high-end very difficult to, to you know work with materials where i actually go on basic i believe basic is the best because always work and i don't like to bring up a price up too much i i want to be i actually want people to use those knives uh, it's a tool yes it, it's, it's a tool for. it's a tool um so, you know from my perspective making knife you know uh, custom made knives shouldn't shouldn't cost more in a in a high-end stage about 650 dollars um but the small i mean i'm talking about big knives you know uh eight seven eight inches depend of the finish handle um don't get me wrong, pieces piece like this, this is $65. Um, so when you cut this and amount of time and the belts, plus your rent and, <laughs> and, and uh, living in Brooklyn, uh, and this is what mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, then you actually, you need to sell for quite amount of money. But people need to use it, mm -hmm. enjoy. This is, this is, this is knife. Yeah. It's not, uh, you know, it's art, but it's not for your wall. Well, all this talk of knives got me thinking about something. There's so many different utensils. You got your dinner fork, your salad fork, your soup spoon. There's the crab cracker. It's kind of hard to keep track of everything. Luckily, most of us know the outside-in rule, and you can live by this rule. You start with the outermost utensil, and you work your way in for each new course. So if the salad comes first, that means the outermost fork is the salad fork. It's really simple. You never even have to know what they're actually called. There's a lot of rules like this, it turns out. Here's another random one for the next time you find yourself in the company of snoots. If you set down your utensils and you're not yet done eating, imagine the plate is the face of a clock. Set the fork at eight o'clock, the knife at four o'clock, and have the points crossed in the middle. That tells the waiter or server, I don't know where you are, that you're not done eating yet. On the other hand, if you are finished, Place them parallel at six o'clock. Waiters are gonna love you now. Okay, now here's one other thing. When you're eating, pay attention. Do you cut with the fork in the left hand and the knife in the right, but then switch your fork to your right hand when you're actually gonna pick stuff up and eat it? If you do, you're probably an American. The European or um, <coughs> continental style is to keep the fork in your left hand the entire time. Tines down, of course. Now, the American style, unsurprisingly, is considered more vulgar. But the irony is that it actually used to be the favored technique in Europe. No one's really sure why the continental technique took over, though I tend to think it's that the Europeans needed to feel superior to the ruffians across the pond. And then that the ruffians across the pond subsequently used our pent-up feelings of inferiority to invent our greatest culinary triumph, the hamburger. Who needs utensils anyway? So that's our show. How Your World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Brian D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. Also, check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And if you want to read more about knives, 
you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. While you're there, you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics Magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dusick. Thanks for listening. Thank you.